The House is in recess until June 30. The Senate will return tomorrow. Last week on the Senate floor, the Senate returned last Monday and voted to confirm John Leonard Badalamenti to be U.S. District Judge for the Middle District of Florida. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then voted to confirm the nomination of Victor G. Mercado to be Assistant Secretary of Defense. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then voted to confirm the nomination of Brian D. Miller to be Special Inspector General for Pandemic Recovery. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then voted to confirm the nomination of James H. Anderson to be a Deputy Undersecretary of Defense. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then voted to confirm the nomination of Drew B. Tipton to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of Texas. On Thursday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then voted to confirm the nomination of Michael Pack to be Chief Executive Officer of the Broadcasting Board of Governors, and then they were done. This week on the Senate floor, they'll come back into session tomorrow with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will conduct a roll call vote on the motion to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to H.R. 1957, the legislative vehicle for the Great American Outdoors Act, which is just what it sounds like, a bill to, quote, amend Title 54 of the United States Code to establish, fund, and provide for the use of amounts in a National Parks and Public Land Legacy Restoration Fund to address the maintenance backlog of the National Park Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, and the Bureau of Indian Education, and to provide permanent dedicated funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund and for other purposes, end quote. The bill would provide $1.9 billion over five years for maintenance at the National Park Service, the Forest Service, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Bureau of Land Management, and the Bureau of Indian Education. It would also provide $900 million per year for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. The bill was introduced by Republican Senators Cory Gardner of Colorado and Steve Daines of Montana, two Republican senators who happened to be in cycle and who happened to be running against a popular Democratic governor and a popular Democrat former governor, both of whom are known as environmentalists. The Senate will spend the entire week on that bill. So the Russia probe continued on Wednesday of last week. Senate Judiciary Chairman Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina launched his committee's probe into the origins of the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation. His first witness was former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. And here to explain what Rosenstein testified to, I'm going to quote extensively from Kimberly Strassel in the Wall Street Journal. Quote, Mr. Rosenstein was confirmed to his position on April 25, 2017, because then Attorney General Jeff Sessions had recused himself from all things Russia. Mr. Rosenstein instantly became responsible for the FBI's investigation into Trump-Russia collusion. In testimony, Mr. Rosenstein acknowledged that because this was one of the most important cases the Justice Department handled, FBI leadership had a duty to inform, quote, the boss, unquote, that is, Mr. Rosenstein, of relevant information. Yet the list of what Mr. Rosenstein wasn't told is jaw-dropping. If he testified truthfully, and he was under oath, FBI Director James Comey and later Acting Director Andrew McCabe withheld from their supervisor nearly every relevant and crucial detail of the investigation. Mr. Rosenstein didn't know that the Hillary Clinton campaign and Democratic National Committee had funded the infamous Christopher Steele dossier, which formed the bulk of the accusations against the Trump campaign. He didn't know the FBI in late 2016 had interviewed colleagues of Mr. Steele who cast doubt on his credibility. He didn't know Mr. Steele's primary source had disavowed the dossier's central elements by January of 2017. 
Mr. Rosenstein wasn't told that the FBI recordings of targets George Papadopoulos and Carter Page provided exculpatory information. He wasn't told that the FBI had moved to drop Mike Flynn, who became White House National Security Advisor, from its investigation in early January. Why? For lack of any evidence of collusion. He wasn't made aware of the recent exculpatory evidence the Justice Department turned over in the Flynn case. Mr. Rosenstein wasn't even told that Mr. Comey kept memos of his conversations with the president. According to an inspector general report, Mr. Comey wrote the memos to, quote, protect, unquote, the FBI and shared them with Mr. McCabe, his chief of staff, Jim Rybicki, and the FBI general counsel, James Baker. In February 2017, the team decided not to inform Justice Department leaders about the memos, since Mr. Sessions was likely to recuse himself while his then-deputy, Dana Buente, was operating in acting capacity. They had no such excuse for not telling Mr. Rosenstein about the memos immediately on his arrival as deputy. The memos were explosive and the basis for the FBI's suspicions about the president. Yet Mr. Rosenstein testified that Mr. McCabe didn't tell him about the documents until a week after Mr. Comey was fired in May, a, quote, couple of hours before they showed up in the New York Times, unquote. How material were these omissions? Mr. Rosenstein made clear that his major decisions to reauthorize the surveillance warrant against Mr. Page, to proceed against Mr. Flynn, even to appoint special counsel Robert Mueller, might have been different if he'd been briefed about all these different facts. That would explain why FBI leaders kept Messrs. Sessions, Buente, and Rosenstein in the dark. This is shocking and in keeping with Mr. Comey's insubordination during the Clinton investigation. It suggests the attitude that the FBI was a law unto itself was widespread. At the same time, the testimony exposed how easy it was for the FBI to mislead its superiors. Texas Senator Ted Cruz made the obvious point. Why hadn't Mr. Rosenstein asked any questions? He well understood Mr. Comey's poor decision-making. He laid out the basis for the director's dismissal. Mr. Rosenstein also knew that Mr. McCabe had withheld the memos until their leak. Why would he trust anything that had come up to that point? Yet Mr. Rosenstein didn't question whether the probe into the Trump campaign involved overreach and abuse similar to that in the Clinton fiasco. He never pushed back on the absurd notion that an incoming national security advisor had violated the obscure Logan Act. Mr. Rosenstein agreed with Mr. Graham that by August 2017, there was still no evidence of Trump-Russia collusion. Yet he admitted that when the Mueller team provided him an expanded scope for its investigation, he simply signed off on it. Mr. Rosenstein spent his testimony protesting that he had no way to know the FBI was breaking the, quote, process. But as Utah Senator Mike Lee observed, quote, process isn't there to provide cover, end quote. Political appointees are supposed to supply accountability. Those officials have a duty to challenge their subordinates, to guard against bad behavior, to discipline rogue actors. Mr. Rosenstein wanted none of it and found it easier to toss the mess to a special counsel, a decision that perversely provided rogue institutional players even more power. Remember that abdication next time the press or Democrats complain about Attorney General Bill Barr's investigations and reforms of his Justice Department. We've witnessed what happens when nobody steps up to run the asylum, and the country is still dealing with the result. End quote. 
The following day, the Senate Judiciary Committee gathered again, ostensibly for the purpose of voting to authorize subpoenas for testimonies and documents to 53 current and former government officials. But raised voices and finger pointing ensued, and Chairman Graham knew he had the votes to authorize the subpoenas in his pocket anyway, so he was magnanimous and decided to postpone the vote for a week so everyone on the committee could vote. Meanwhile, over in the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, Chairman Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin was winning a vote to authorize 35 subpoenas for testimony and documents to a different cast of characters. Now to the economy. Friday morning, the jobs report came out and the world was stunned. Rather than losing another 7.5 million jobs, which was the consensus projection of mainstream economists, the economy added 2.5 million jobs in the month of May, and unemployment dropped to 13.3%, according to data released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That followed a loss of 20.7 million jobs in April, which sent the unemployment rate up to 14.7%, according to BLS. But there was a catch. The BLS report included a note at the bottom that said there had been what the report called a major error, indicating that the unemployment rate likely should have been higher than the 13.3% rate declared in the report. If this so-called misclassification error had not occurred, the unemployment rate would have been closer to 16.3%. Still, if that same misclassification error had not occurred on the previous month's report, then the unemployment rate in April would have been reported at 19.7% rather than 14.7%. So any way you look at it, the May jobs number were significantly better than the April numbers. On the personnel front, on Tuesday, Senator Mitt Romney, the one Republican senator who voted to convict President Trump, indicated that he will vote to confirm acting OMB Director Russ Vaught to the job on a permanent basis. During a confirmation hearing before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, Romney made kind remarks to vote about Russ's service to the country. As the only Republican who had voted to convict Trump, Romney had been seen as a wild card on the nomination. And because the makeup of the committee is eight Republicans and six Democrats, a Romney flip would have prevented the nomination from moving to the floor with the blessings of the committee. Meanwhile, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, is not happy with the recent spate of firings of inspectors general by the Trump administration, and he wants to find out what's going on. He's apparently so frustrated with his inability to get the answers he seeks that he has now put holds on two administration nominees, Christopher Miller, the nominee to become director of the National Counterterrorism Center, and Marshall Billingsley to be undersecretary of state for arms control and international security. Grassley is demanding answers for the ousters of Michael Atkinson, the intelligence community's inspector general, and Steve Linick, the State Department's inspector general. Now to the George Floyd unrest. The legislative response to the unrest provoked by the death of George Floyd was predictable. House Democrats will introduce a bill this week that would mandate significant reforms in police training and conduct using federal taxpayer money to implement the changes they seek. The Justice in Policing Act of 2020 will be sponsored on the House side by Representative Karen Bass of California, chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus, along with Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler of New York. On the Senate side, the companion bill will be co-sponsored by Senators Cory Booker of New Jersey and Kamala Harris of California. Speaker Pelosi has vowed to have a police reform bill on the floor of the House by the end of the month. Reports John Bresnahan in Politico, quote, the most controversial proposals 
would revise federal statutes covering when police officers can be charged with using excessive force and whether they can be sued for such behavior. Current federal law states that police officers have to willfully deprive a person of their constitutional rights in order to be charged with wrongdoing, according to the Justice Department's website. Democrats want to revise the federal standard from willful to knowingly or with reckless disregard as well as altering the language covering when such illegal acts are found to have resulted in someone's death. In addition, Democrats want to limit the qualified immunity for police officers to enable individuals to recover damages when law enforcement officers violate their constitutional rights, according to the outline. These changes are sure to be opposed by police unions who wield political clout at the state and local level. Democrats also want to grant subpoena power to the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division to investigate allegations of police misconduct, as well as incentivizing state attorneys general to conduct pattern and practice investigations against police forces with a history of mistreatment involving minority communities. Another major change would be the creation of a National Police Misconduct Registry. Democrats and police reform advocates say officers found guilty of misconduct too often move from one department to another despite a history of bad conduct. The legislation would create a federal registry of all federal, state, and local law enforcement officers that includes misconduct complaints and discipline or termination records. Police departments would have to declare that each new officer hired is certified. And a federal database would be created that includes reports on any use of force by police against civilians. The data would be broken down by the national origin, sex, race, ethnicity, age, disability, English language proficiency, and housing status of each civilian against whom a law enforcement officer used force, according to the outline of the proposal. Democrats also want to end racial and religious profiling, require training on racial bias and the duty to intervene, ban no-knock warrants in drug cases, end the use of chokeholds and carotid holds, change the standard to evaluate whether law enforcement use of force was justified from whether the force was reasonable to whether the force was necessary, limit the transfer of military-grade equipment to state and local police departments, require uniformed federal law enforcement officers to wear body cameras and use federal funds to make the use of such cameras more widespread for state and local police. Lynching would become a federal crime under federal hate crime statutes as well. Harris and Booker this week clashed with Senator Rand Paul over the Kentucky Republicans' opposition to a House-passed bill making lynching a federal hate crime. Paul wants changes to the bill that he says are needed to ensure lynching charges can't be brought for minor injuries. His efforts to hold up the bill's quick approval brought condemnations from Booker and Harris on the Senate floor, end quote. Meanwhile, on Wednesday of last week, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer gifted Republicans with a vote they haven't seen in 27 years a vote to establish the District of Columbia as the 51st state. Reported roll call Hoyer on Wednesday, quote, stressed the need for a vote this year on D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton's statehood bill, unquote. Delegate Norton's bill was originally introduced as H.R. 51, the Washington, D.C. Admission Act. The bill had 223 co-sponsors. It is now designated as H.R. 5803, 
And it was reported out of the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform on February 11, 2020, by a party line vote of 21 to 16. Of course, Delegate Norton is offering a piece of legislation designed to use Congress's power to admit new states into the Union. That power is found in the Constitution in Article 4, Section 3, Clause 1. Some have suggested that because we're talking about making the federal district a new state, it would require a constitutional amendment because the federal district is itself specifically discussed in the Constitution in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17. Of course, given the political history of the District of Columbia, it is heavily, heavily Democrat. There is no way a constitutional amendment or a law that would have the political effect of granting the Democratic Party another two Senate seats and another U.S. House seat in perpetuity would ever pass the United States Senate as long as there are 34 Republican senators to vote against it, which means this will be nothing but a show vote. Hoyer knows it. Norton knows it. Everyone knows it. But that won't keep them from using up the floor time. And that's our Washington report for this week.